0: yourself. I
1: got an interesting
0: email this week. He says, thank you for taking my email in question. My girlfriend and I are having trouble resuming our sexuality and I'm wondering if it's because I betrayed her even though I'm in good recovery right now. And you know what, I would need to talk with you to be able to know what the deal is. But what I do believe is anytime there's been sexual betrayal, it does affect your sexual relationship. So the first thing you need to do is you need to talk to her and you need to ask her if she's trusting you right now. More than likely, she isn't. And then you need to say, what would it take to make you trust me. And this is going to help her to decide, can she trust you? What would it take? More than likely, it's going to take time. You don't want to put any pressure on her. Sexuality is an extremely delicate, fragile issue once sexual betrayal has occurred. So don't expect too much of her too soon. Please stay patient. And know that this is the consequences of your behavior. And what we got to do is make it right. We've got to improve the relationship by building the trust. And you do that with communication and vulnerability and ongoing intimacy. Now, tonight, I'm going to be talking to Marie Krebs, and she is our Intimacy and vulnerability expert. I cannot wait to discuss how do you work through those issues because let's face it, most sex addicts are not good with vulnerability. They don't know what true intimacy is, but they know that they want it, especially when they're in sexual addiction recovery. They know they're missing something, and they want to take their life to the next level. So We're going to be talking about how do you develop more vulnerability and what does it look like, whether you're the addict in recovery or the partner who wants to trust. Hey, I got another email this week and it's from a woman who says, I've been listening to both of your podcasts and I sure appreciate them. I have a perspective that has not come up in either of them, so I wanted to share it with you. Now, what she's referencing is my Sex Help with Carol the Coach, that's what you're listening to right now, and at 2 o'clock on Thursdays, that's 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I do a show that's sponsored by APSATS, that's APSATS, that's the partner-sensitive training program that helps clinicians and coaches to learn what they need to do to attend to the needs of partners. She says, I was a partner of a sex addict and we got into therapy pretty quickly. I also got into COSA early on. In the second time we met with a therapist, the therapist recommended we start a disclosure process. I had an immediate hell no response. I couldn't verbalize why, but it was very strong. I brought this up at my COSA meeting and got great feedback and heard other people's experiences. Through that, I realized that disclosure just sounded so traumatic and so unsafe for me. My COSA friends helped me think about what I wanted. Here is the list I came up with. Now, before I talk to you about her list, I want to tell you that as part of an APSATS-trained organization, we believe that once a sex addict is in good recovery, yeah, this might take two, three, four, five months, that a disclosure is necessary, we want you to know the truth. We want you to have all the facts, all the wrongdoing, and we want you to be able to follow that up with a polygraph test. Now, here's what I also know to be true. I was talking with somebody today who said, I do not want a disclosure. And I said, you know what? You're the partner. If you don't want a disclosure, end the discussion. Because although the disclosures really help sex addicts to become honest and open about what they've participated in, and it can relieve them and make them feel better, ultimately the disclosure is for the partner so that she can begin to know that she has the truth. She knows everything she needs to know to the point of the disclosure. And, by a polygraph, she has some idea as to whether she wants to move forward or not. I mean, we do advise people who take disclosures to stay together for the partner it's a year and um, for the addict it's two. But, here's what I know. If you're a partner, you're really in the driver's seat. It's what you need and want. That's part of being partner sensitive. So if you don't want a disclosure, take your time, know what your gut says, and trust it. And even though Carol the coach advises the disclosure, if you don't want it, there's a good reason you don't want it. So just trust it And what I believe is if you pay attention to what you need, more awareness will come to you. Now, back to my friend. We'll call her Susie. Susie said, here is the list I came up with. I wanted to know if there was anything I did not know about that that fell within the following categories. Health risks I had not considered. I had already gone to my GYN, so I have no idea what additional health issues could have happened, but I put it on the list. Was anyone in my house who I didn't already know about, did any of them have keys? Obviously, that's a physical safety issue, as as is her health. Were there any financial implications I didn't already know about? For instance, did he take out any loans? Number two, my husband confirmed that I knew all of the health implications, financial implications, and who had been in our house. Number three, beyond that, I said no disclosing, no more randomly telling me about things that have happened with prostitutes or other sexual partners. For instance, if we were making plans to eat out, he couldn't tell me, that's a good restaurant, I went there with one of my providers. He preferred the term provider to prostitute. And especially, no bragging, no telling me sexual techniques he had learned from acting out. It was painful. It was hurtful. Well, no kidding, Susie. Um, I am glad you set some major boundaries with your husband because obviously in his due diligence, to be honest, it also feels like he has no idea what he needs to talk to you about and what he shouldn't, and he's hurting you. He's hurting you emotionally. So I'm glad that you had the to know what you didn't want to hear. So, she says, if he would start to do this, I would interrupt and say, hey, I don't wish to hear that. If he persisted, I would physically leave the situation. That is a great consequence. Going forward, if you acted it out, he should disclose to me, but it should be either in therapy or with a trusted person from our recovery community. No kidding, Susie, because what he's doing is more staggered disclosure, and that's why we have a disclosure, so that you won't have to deal with more staggered disclosure. This guy doesn't get it. Sounds like you need an APSATS-trained therapist or a CSAT who understands partner-sensitive trauma. The therapist we were seeing at the time was not a good fit for me, so we were already looking for someone new. When we did find a therapist who was ready to deal with us as a couple, and especially me as a partner, he supported me in this. I was open to the idea that down the road things might change, but until then I would stick to these boundaries. My husband decided that he could not maintain integrity in our relationship, so we divorced Even if things had gone differently, I can't imagine that additional disclosure would have been healthy for me. I know I'm in the minority, but I wanted to share this with you, Carol, as it may be relevant to others. And Susie, that's why I'm sharing it with the rest of the group, because we do have recommendations. But obviously, you're right. Your husband did not have sensitivity. He didn't have anybody to help him develop that. He was an open book, almost as if he was bragging about what he did. And whether he was bragging or not, he was not being sensitive to your feelings. I'm sorry that you decided to divorce. It sounds like it was his decision. And hey, maybe he couldn't get healthy and this was the best thing possible. I am so happy that you emailed me to share your feelings about a disclosure. Um, and I'm so sorry that that did not work out for you because disclosures are actually supposed to make you feel safe, and obviously this one didn't. Kudos to you, Susie, for sharing that with me so that I could share it with my audience so that if there are other people that have that gut feeling, they can go to a CSAT at sexhelp.com, or they can go to an app set, a partner specialist who knows how to help you set boundaries to keep yourself safe. Now, I got to tell you, Susie, we've got a great show tonight. Um, We are talking with Marie Krabs, and I'm telling you, this is a vulnerability and intimacy expert, and she's going to be sharing how you can hold more space while trust is rebuilt and intimacy is increased. She believes that understanding the intersection of vulnerability and intimacy is critical if you intend to have a solid foundation for a deep and lasting relationship with your partner over time. So again, I'm really excited that she's going to be talking to us about two really important topics, intimacy, vulnerability. So as an expert in the field, I want to welcome Marie Krebs to the show. Hi, Marie.
1: Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. You know, so many of our listeners want to know how to develop more intimacy and vulnerability. I have sex addicts and good recovery that want to know, and then I have partners who are with husbands or wives and. and you a know, coupleship or sexual addiction has occurred, and they really do want to begin to develop that, but they're not sure if it's safe. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this field and what you would describe as intimacy and vulnerability?
1: Well, I'd be happy to, Carol. And, again, thanks for having me on. Um, well, you know, um, I really like this this topic of the intersection between vulnerability and intimacy because, you know, to have true connection, true intimacy, and this isn't just about having sex, it is it's a. It's, it's a much deeper and richer, more meaningful um, connection with your partner, it is all about being vulnerable, and um, so um, you know, one of the things that it, it seems in my practice, i this month of August moving into uh, September has been, for me, really recognizing this uh, lack of self-awareness that so many people have. I, I kind of jokingly say if I were to walk into a movie theater full of people and go to the front of the theater and ask, okay, everyone, by a show of hands, how many of you in here think you're pretty self-aware? Most hands are going to go up, right? Right. Right. Yeah, right? But the truth of the matter is most of us are not nearly as self-aware as we think we are. Um, and and because, you know, part of it is, you know, we, we have a certain amount of data that we can collect, right, out there in the world, but, you know, based on, you know, what we see or what we've, told, you know, been told or what we have been, you know, experienced. And so, you know, we take that data into our processor, you know, up in our head, And so, you know, our old experiences and our um, uh, belief systems and, you know, faith traditions or lack of faith traditions or all of these things inform all of these things that we see and experience. And we think that based on that in and of itself that we are pretty self-aware. But the reality of it is we're really not because there's so much unseen and unknown out there. And and I think particularly when it comes to to what it means to be vulnerable, you know, um, I there's there's a lot of myths out there, um, and and I think that you know um, you know you have to really kind of spend some time with wrestling with some of those myths and and getting a clear understanding of really what it means to be vulnerable, um, and and that that's the place to start. Absolutely. So
0: when you talk about myths, about vulnerability, can you share what some of those
1: myths are? Well, I think the most obvious one, and I I hope that it's becoming clearer to people, that the most obvious myth is that, you know, vulnerability means weakness. And it is absolutely not anything about weakness. In, In fact, it's the most accurate measure of courage. Um, I, I think people also, you know, another myth is people think that they can opt out, that you don't have to be vulnerable. And I think that in some circumstances, yes, yeah, people can do that. But there is going to be, I mean, part of the human experience is you're going to, whether you like it or not, there's going to be times when you're going to have to be vulnerable and you're going to, you're going to feel very exposed. And it's about how to do that in, in a safe way, right, um, with boundaries. You know, some people think that vulnerability is all about like oversharing, you know, uh, diving in and sharing all of our deepest, um, um, darkest with, you know, someone we don't even know very well. That's not oversharing. Um, the, the idea is that we should only really be sharing our personal stories and our, um, you know, uh, those types of connections with somebody that's really earned the right to hear them. You know, in other words, vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability. Um, It may be a way to kind of um, uh, what I refer to as like hot wiring connection. Um, It may be that we have some story that, you know, um, or an experience that we want to share with somebody. Um, But, you know, the truth is we can't go alone. um, It's all about connection. We are neurobiologically wired to be in connection with one another, and um you well, know whether the the parent child relationship or you know partner you know husband and wife,
0: yeah, I absolutely get that, and you know what I find with the sex addicts that I work with is that they seem to have developmental de- delays, and I say, you know, is that that they had those issues before they got into sexual addiction? Or Mm -hmm. is that a result of being in sexual addiction? It kind of stopped their ability to be relational. Now, you said the myths of vulnerability are, A, people think if you're vulnerable, you're weak. Or, B, vulnerability means oversharing when really that's sharing without boundaries. And that is not a healthy choice. So I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about... Healthy vulnerability,
1: and and I like. um, I hope you're gonna. You're up for this uh, (laughs) kind of a little uh, test, if you will, to test your vulnerability quotient. Um, Yeah, I'm gonna give you a couple. Okay, good. I'm. I'm, I I love that you're always um, open and eager to do those kinds of things with me. Okay. 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 Um, So what I want to do is I want to give you some examples, and I want you to tell me is this an example of somebody who is being vulnerable in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. So the first example is sharing the intimate details of your child's reaction to your divorce on Facebook. Absolutely
0: not. Facebook is a public arena, and I would never share something so personal as my child's reactions to anything that's interpersonal. So I would say when it comes to Facebook, Never overshare. I mean, it's just not healthy, and it's not fair to do to yourself and whoever you're talking about.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, um, I've I've been trained in Brené Brown's work, work, and um, she's done a lot of work on shame resilience and, um, you know, vulnerability and and true intimacy and how to, you know, how to um, uh, incorporate that back or even begin it in the beginning, you know, I mean, um, in the beginning of a relationship. She she uses the example, um, and, and similar to Facebook, you know, um, uh, the example of someone who's live tweeting their uh, bikini wax. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who just, especially when it comes to social media, just think that just just almost like a word vomit of, of putting anything and everything out there it's going to make them more, you know, like people are going to think, oh, they're so open or they're so o- able to connect. And the reality, that's not about being vulnerable at all. Um, and and uh, let me give you another example. Coming home from work to tell your wife that you've just been, bu- been fired, is that uh, being vulnerable?
0: Um, I would say if you're coming home from work to tell your wife you've just been fired, that is vulnerable. You're not waiting. You're not taking three days. Or like some of my addicts have done, they've hidden those kind of things for their from their wife because they're afraid of the reaction. So, yeah, I would say with a wife, that's really important to talk about a crisis in your life. As soon as possible.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. How about this? How about being the first person to say I love you in a relationship? Hmm.
0: I definitely think that's vulnerable, and I believe as long as it's not in the first six weeks, you know, sometimes people will, the third date, they're going to be talking about love. Oh, absolutely. You know, if if you've been with that person for a while, you really know who that person is, you're really making some healthy choices, it's absolutely okay to tell them first that you love them.
1: I agree. I, I, I think particularly that, you know, that as we briefly mentioned before, but we'll be talking about a little bit more, you know, the idea is vulnerability with boundaries creates intimacy. You know, um, I, again, that, that idea of kind of hot wiring connection and how some people might use that as a great example for trying to manipulate somebody in a relationship, you, mm-hmm. say, you know, just to kind of move the relationship along quicker. Um, yeah, it's it's. But again, um, getting to know that person and and you know telling somebody you love them in the first three days, um, you know you you could. I think the more accurate thing to say would be to say, "Oh my gosh, when I am around you, I am experiencing so much dopamine in my body, and it feels so good." Because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's really what's going on, right? Um, right, exactly. That, that's that infatuation. That's exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, last, uh, last kind of a quiz question. Sharing your feelings of sadness about the recent death of your father with an attractive woman at the office that you've never spoken with before. Mm.
0: Although you might be inclined to do that, especially if... She has talked about death in her family. I really think that's something that you say for people that you really care about, that you have deep, intimate relationships with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and here's here's it's just kind of a tricky question, but, but the reason I put it in there, I added the part that, you know, it was an attractive woman at the office that you've never spoken with before because, again, this is somebody you've never had a conversation with. And so, like your very first conversation is going to be sharing these intimate feelings of sadness uh, about the loss and death of your father with you know someone that you're attracted to. Um, again, it it kind of gets into that gray area of that trying to hotwire connection with somebody just for the sake of getting closer to them. Um, it,
0: it, it, well, it can and it kind and of. I a got to say, course. Marie. You have mentioned something really important because sometimes when people don't know each other well, when they do share something intimate and there seems to be some sort of connection, it does produce dopamine it does produce oxytocin and and they think that that relationship is more important than it really is it It's
1: kind of a a high if you will for the person yeah. that's exactly right and 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 again being mindful of that. And and you know here's the here's the other piece of this I mean and that's why it's kind of a tricky question you know um, if, if you don't really have a lot of close friends right and you don't really have people to you know to share with I mean I, I certainly would not expect anybody who was you know trying to contend with a lot of really painful feelings following the death of a parent you know by themselves and soldier on I'm not I'm not suggesting that at all but you know the thing is you know, there are so many resources today, and with social media, and with advertising, and and people being connected to other people, there's all kinds of support groups out there. You know, for somebody to have a safe place to go and share those feelings. You know, about the the loss of some You know, there's grief recovery groups and and um, support groups out there. Um, that that, but but you know, that idea of being really selective about you know, and again, I I kind of asked this in a way, intentionally. Because people will use, find opportunities, if you will, to try to connect with people um, um, that they're attracted to and they're doing it more from a manipulative way, um, you know, coming into a relationship from an authentic place.
0: Well, absolutely, and I think oftentimes sex addicts have been so in tune with how to manipulate, how to connect, how to get what they want, how to groom but it gets really dicey as to what they're really feeling, so they're especially vulnerable to not knowing boundaries and not knowing when something is too much. So, obviously, for right. our listeners out there, if you're in recovery, you really want to examine your motives, your boundaries, what the consequences are before you make a choice, and it's hard for them to do because they're impulsive and tend to want to jump into something.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But then again, see, that's where mindfulness practices can help to, right, to help increase that time from reacting to allow them to be able to respond and slow things down a bit. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I want to ask you,
0: um, what keeps, people from sharing their true selves with their partners. I mean, that is the number one thing that partners want. And yet, even addicts in recovery, they have trouble sharing their true selves. Sure.
1: Well, uh, you actually said it before. (laughs) You know, you might not have remembered, but fear, you know, um, sharing their true self. Fear that, that if they do that their partner will either uh, lead them, they will be judged, they won't be, you know, they won't uh, love, uh, the fear that, you know, we're going to ask for something that we're not going to be able, uh, that they won't give us, um, um, it's fear. You know, I, it's interesting, I, was, I had a dinner with a couple of people um, earlier this evening, and um, one of the women was saying that one of the greatest lessons that she learned is that if you make any kind of a decision, whatever it is, based on fear, you can expect more fear.
0: Mm. And I thought, you know, Mm.
1: that is so true. That is so true. I know from my own experience, my, my way of kind of looking at that is I have a choice every single day when I get up. I'm either going to be living in abundance or scarcity. So if I'm living in a place of abundance and trust, and recovery, then then I'm you know it's going to be a good day, right? But if I drop into scarcity or fear, and I'm and I'm I'm, I'm not willing to step out and, and be vulnerable and show up and be real and authentic in my relationship, um, that 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 it you know there's that's kind of that shadow stuff that starts coming out, and and you know I think that you know this whole thing about the shadow side may seem like, at least in the beginning, kind of a seemingly safe decision, right? It's like, you know, Mm -hmm. withholding our truth. But the problem with it is that, you know, even if we do that, you know, months, years, or even decades later, by withholding like that, all of a sudden we're going to find ourselves with, you know, um, these deep, unmet needs, longings. You know, uh, intense feelings of um, unfulfilled wishes, depression, loneliness, um, and then you know, if we're if we're unable to, you know, with our partner, to be able to have these conversations, you know, um, oftentimes this is what you know leads people into um, um, straying from the relationship with their primary partner because of their their well, and- own with husband in the first place.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I want our listening audience to know, because you just brought up some important concepts like scarcity and abundance. Marie, tell us a little bit about yourself so that they know who, um, who you are as a provider.
1: Sure. So I am a, uh, I'm a therapist in Dallas, Texas, um, and I work, with, um, I work with partners. I work with addicts. I work with the coupleship. Um and um so I treat intimacy disorders, I do a lot of trauma work with folks, um I use brain sputting and other modalities to work with um my clients. Um I also do interventions and I'm a treatment consultant. Um I've been trained in a lot of different um Brene Brown's work, you know, Daring Way. Um uh, I'm a spiritual director. Have a whole host of um, you know um, different um, certifications and things, and uh, and do a lot of service work in the community too. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what
0: I do. Well, and for our listening audience, you know, when I was going through the APSATS training, we had to be supervised, and I got supervised from from Marie. And I especially wanted to to work with her because of that spiritual direction. I feel like that is a a very important component. And, Marie, you're way wise beyond your age, and you brought up two concepts. You brought up something that is near and dear to my heart. And as a coach and a mental health clinician, it is the law of abundance and the law of scarcity. So can you just share a little bit more about that before we talk about how that affects vulnerability?
1: Absolutely. So you know it's and it's funny because you know you can kind of like that all or nothing. So you know from a spiritual perspective, and and this doesn't mean you know I I work with people from a variety of um, faith perspectives, orientations, um, the church, the unchurched, you know, believers, non-believers, agnostics, even atheists. Um, But you know this this whole idea, particularly for those that are, um, uh, you know, um, believers, Christians, or others from other faith traditions, even when I'm just having a conversation around God, and um, you know, one of my favorite questions is, well, you know, so you say you believe in God, and people, well, yes, I believe in God. Well, and I say, well, how much do you believe in God? You know, because to me, it's either you do or you don't. It's, it's you know, unlike pregnancy, right. you know, you. You're either you're either pregnant or you're not. It's one or the other. You either believe in God or you don't. But it's you know, for a lot of people, what you know, like, well, I, the responses I oftentimes get, Carol, will be things along the line of, well, you know, like 75, 80 percent, and I'm like, okay, so 75, 80 percent of the time, God's got your back. You know that you know you are uh, you you're going to be taken care of. But you you know, there's another 25, 30 percent that's yours, and and they say oh, yes. And I'm like, okay, so can you give me an example of a time in your life when, you know, even when it was one of your darkest hours, you know, and, and you've obviously survived that, right? You have got through that and you're, you know, you're here today. You know, tell me, you know, was there a time that God just was not, absolutely was not there for you? And, and, um, and so for me, that, that, that concept of abundance versus scarcity from a spiritual perspective, that is, it's either you know, we do believe that God has our back, and even though, and so much of it, we don't even see, I mean, we're not even able to understand things when we're in the midst of it, but most people, when asked, you know, to reflect on a time, you know, when they, was one of their darkest times, they can pretty readily recount that, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, such and such happened, but then it's interesting and then they begin, you know, a story of, and so I'm able to kind of point them back to this and so even though in your darkest time when you felt like you, you know, and you were in a lot of fear and you were not um, held or protected or, you know, a new opportunity or a door or window opened for you, um, once they can see that, then they can begin to make those connections. And, and again, to me this belief around abundance versus scarcity it's not like an all the time feeling. It's a very much like the breath. You wake up every day and is this gonna be a day that I'm gonna be in a place of abundance and trusting God. Is that how I'm gonna is that my intention I'm gonna set for the day in my morning prayer and meditation, which is something that we recommend you know, recommend to anybody in recovery. Um, and and so latching on to that kind of I, I, I say it's kinda of like you're setting your spiritual thermostat for the day, right? <laughs> in your prayer and meditation. And, and having it up there with abundance. And not to say that we're not throughout the course of the day we're going to be having encounters or experiences that are going to put us into a place, a place of fear or anger or loneliness or sadness or some other feeling state. But, you know, the reality of it is coming back in and kind of checking back in It's like and catching oneself, you know.
0: Because mm-hmm. I think for a
1: lot of people, the catching themselves part, that's, that's really where the rubber meets the road. 'Cause oftentimes what happens is we're so swept up in it that we don't even realize that we've moved out of abundance, into scarcity, into fear, and then all and it just fear begets, fear begets fear.
0: Yeah, and you know, so, you're talking about such an important concept and there's a lot of people that believe we either operate under uh, from love or we operate from fear and that's kind of that right. abundance scarcity premise yeah. and one of the things I think that you just mentioned that is so important for our listening audience, and it's one of the reasons I propose and really support 12-step work is because when you are connected spiritually to whatever that is, whether that's Buddhism, whether that's being um, Christian, whether it's Judaism, you're not so alone. And here we are talking about intimacy and vulnerability. And when you don't feel alone, you are less vulnerable. And when you are less vulnerable, you have more of an opportunity to be intimate. So, hey, I'm going to ask you something. Um, Obviously, part of our ability to be relational is to really have a grounded sense of who we are so Uh if if you're married to a sex addict or you just don't feel safe with your partner who's a sex addict is there a way to create intimacy in a safe way with somebody else
1: Well, let me let me answer the question this way. Okay. Because to me, Carol, my my belief, regardless of the relationship, whether it's your if you're married to a sex, anyone else, um, you know, any any intimate relationship, and and when I say intimate, I'm 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 not I don't mean necessarily sexual relationship, but any close relationship with someone, you're going to have to have a foundation of safety. Okay. In a uh, coupleship, though, particularly, uh, there are numerous domains where it's important for a person to feel safe. And I, I tend to grow very granular with the clients that I work with because I think that you know it can be so difficult to think about, you know, well, you know people I ask the question, I do, like what do you need to feel safe again? in this relationship in order to be vulnerable. And then I'll get responses like, mm, well, I have to be able to trust him, right? Or, you know, I have to, you know, feel confident that, you know, it, you know, he's not going to be lying anymore, right, that he's going to be truthful. Right. Um, now, the thing about saying that, you know, that I can trust him, uh, that's a pretty broad word to me. And I don't know about you, but, you know, you asked, Three different people on the street Well what does it mean for you to be able to trust somebody You're going to you Make it some varying answers Degrees of what it means to trust somebody And so what I do Is I go really granular with people And I give them various domains um, Emotional Physical, psychological Spiritual, financial Relational And sexual safety And in each Of those domains our work is is to begin to identify specific behaviors, things that you can observe, right, in each of those domains in order for the person to feel um, safe. And so um, one of the things I talk about is that, you know, early in recovery, I, I fully expect that there's going to be a lot of things on there that usually have to do and have... Um, something to do with a person's recovery and what their recovery looks like, you know, whether it's, whether it's going to meetings or, you know, going to a counselor getting a sponsor, working the steps, you know, this, that, and the other. But then as time goes on, you know, and, you know, the recovery begins to build, um, there may be some new things that get added into this safety list. Um, um, And, and, and the thing is, this is really working on both sides. So, yes, it is for the partner, what what the um, uh, partner needs to feel safe and, and able to be emotionally vulnerable. But it also works for the person struggling with the intimacy disorder, you know, and the sex addict, um, If you know, in order for them to feel safe in the relationship. Um, and so, you know, helping, you know, the individual work through what are some what are some things that can be done to help, you know, um, help the couple feel safe with each other in order to be vulnerable and to be able to really experience true connection and intimacy in the relationship? And, you know, I mean, there, there's just a whole host of different things, and so I'm not going to go into each one, but, you know, just, you know, from a, a, a physical um, uh, safety, I mean, simply in terms of, you know, um, you know behaviors and and again because there's so there the um, range of um, acting out behaviors is so diverse I, we don't have enough time to talk about all of those but i, I I'd like to just give you those as a kind of a, a bucket list if you will and each of those domains is an individual bucket and from those that's where I work with clients to be able to develop a list and i, I you know I make I recommend different um Uh, readings and things like that. And oftentimes those will help with helping to kind of flesh that out for people. Um, And, you know, again, creating greater insight and awareness about what's reasonable to expect. Um, And then depending, like I said, depending on where the partner is and their recovery, you know, that determines what gets put on the list or taken off after time. And regarding that, how to be more vulnerable with your partner, one of the things that, um, I suggest um, that they uh, consider, you know, in terms of the healing process, is this idea of personal growth. And, um, you know, and that's a commitment that, you know, both parties, whether, you know, the addict or the partner, that they make a commitment to personal growth. You know, um, so many times, you know, um, unfortunately, partners, I hear from them, it's his problem. He needs to do the, you know, like he needs to do all the work. I'm fine. And it's like, well, no, actually, it's kind of like, you know, when I work with families and I send somebody, you know, off to treatment to get, you know, treatment from a particular addiction, you know, if, if the family doesn't get help and, and begin working on themselves, that person comes back into the same kind of a system, right? So it, it is right. that, that idea of, of doing their own uh, personal growth. So, so you know, when you think about, like, what are some simple things, um, and, and, you know, because, as you said, it's hard to, you know, the reason we don't want to share our personal, you know, um, stories with others, particularly our partners, is because of the fear of, you know, what they would say, or what they would do, or judge us, or whatever, but, but what I, what I do is, like, Again, trying to go granular. What, like, what are some truths about yourself that you might be willing to share, right? And 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 I'll tell you, it, it's difficult as it is for a lot of addicts to really recognize their feelings. And and I I do a lot around the emotional intelligence piece um, because um, just being able to label a feeling is so hard. But then I know, in my experience, I'm working with addicts that once once you, they start the work, all of a sudden then the flooding of feelings comes, right? And then it's almost too much, and then how do you contain this stuff, right? But being able to kind of work in that realm, you know, in terms of being able to share just our feelings around things. Um, um, ha- having somebody, you know, um, even working with their therapist and practicing about, you know, what, what is something that you've longed to tell your, your, your wife or your partner but you were afraid to, I mean, just at least have somebody to share that with, right? And then being able to work with a therapist to be able to, how could you say this in a way that, you know, it can be conveyed and they can be able to hear you and listen behind what you're, you know, here to understand, that's what I was trying to say, be able to hear what you're saying in order to understand what you're saying, versus how most people communicate, Carol, and you know this, I know in your own work, you know, they are listening in order to react, in order to come back with, well, yeah, you may feel bad, but let me tell you how I feel kind of a thing, as opposed to being curious with one another. Um, no, I
0: absolutely agree with that a hundred percent, and You know, I'm so glad you talked about feeling identification. I'm actually in the midst of writing a book on empathy, and feeling identification is one of the things that's at the core of developing empathy. If an addict doesn't know his feelings or if um, a partner doesn't feel safe enough to share his or her feelings, Mm -hmm. they're at a standstill, and so... You know, I believe in the five primary feelings, which is anger, sadness, loneliness, fear, and happiness. And what I find is it's almost, it's almost helpful to start out with the basics. Now, earlier you talked about, I believe it was about six areas that you have them check in terms of their own vulnerability. And I just wanted to go over that one more time, Marie. You said that was physical, emotional, sexual what else
1: psychological mhm spiritual mhm financial mhm and relational and relational okay
0: you know i just find that our uh, listeners do really well when they can just compartmentalize these different areas and start looking at their life and saying okay yeah how am i physically vulnerable or how am i financially vulnerable or what do i have to give from uh, a psychological standpoint so i think this is excellent and i'm wondering you have a website correct
1: i do yep yeah.
0: is any of this material on your website
1: um well no <laughs> No, but that's a good idea. I should probably I should probably you know, it's funny, I've done this presentation. I was um I asked to come and speak down in Austin yesterday to a, uh, a a class and um I actually did this um with a group yesterday and um so I find myself talking about it a lot. maybe I would just kind of put it together and put it up on my um on my website. That's not a bad idea. Well let me and just Carol, oh. let me let me say this. <laughs> Okay. Let okay. me let me say this for clarification. That, okay. the, that list, if you will, of those different domains, those were the domains uh-huh. of creating safety in a relationship. Okay. And so in order to create like emotional safety, physical, psychological safety. But the thing is, it's in creating safety in those different domains that we are able to have those boundaries, right, and then from those, right. you know, the safety creates the boundaries and the boundaries are then we are then able to be vulnerable in each of those domains right so as okay. long as as yeah. long as so let me give you a good example just from an emotional or let's say let's say psychological because you know okay. i and i know that for for some addicts they do not like the word you know being accused of gaslighting but the reality of it is recognizing when they are gaslighting right so in order for a partner to be able to feel safe, psychologically safe, it would be no gaslighting, right, to be able to say that from a, a perspective about safety there. But then so knowing and, and understanding that that is like something that they are maybe learning how to do, like maybe they're not even aware of it, okay? And I, in, in some cases I would probably give the benefit of the doubt to some addicts that they really aren't even aware of how they have because they've been manipulating for so long they're not even aware of it, but right. for them to be able right. to be vulnerable enough to their partner and be able to say to them, you know what, I really want to work on that. So if it, it appears to you that I am gaslighting because, you know, I come in and I, you know, say such and such or whatever, and you, I'm gonna, I want to I be able to tell you that you can point it out for me, right, if I'm not aware that in and of itself is an act of vulnerability and uh, and a reestablishing trust in the relationship to be able to go, to be open to a partner saying and pointing out the fact that you're gaslighting here or you're asking me to do something sexually that does not feel safe to me because when you ask me to do something like that and having that, being having, being able to have that kind of a dialogue between a, in the coupleship, um, that is a really... Um, I mean, it's a it's a beautiful place of healing and connection when uh, people that have struggled with sex addiction can be as open to their partners to be able to create that safety for them and ask for their help in being able to do that. And in my experience, it's when the addicts are able to be that vulnerable. and and open to feedback from their partners that they can really take their recovery to a different level and really work at healing the relationship with their partner.
0: Well, and that makes so much sense because truly in a relationship, when you are vulnerable and you're vulnerable in a healthy way and you're more honest Mm -hmm. open and transparent, it creates intimacy. So I absolutely agree with that. Now, I want to ask you, There, you know, you talk about the intersection between vulnerability and intimacy.
1: So one more
0: time, yes. when does that intersection occur?
1: It's, it's all about boundaries, all about the boundaries. Okay. The intersection between vulnerability and intimacy is boundaries. So when we maintain clear and simple boundaries with others, they are, boundaries are intended to keep us safe. Healthy boundaries in regards to vulnerability simply means that we are vulnerable with people that have earned the right to hear our story. That are that if we're working to heal a relationship, that we are open to feedback from our partners, that to help us see when you know see when we're falling short and not showing up, and being able to say it in a way that it's not punitive or judgmental, but more like course correction. We're able to demonstrate reliability. We do what we say and we say what we're going to do and vice versa. Um, we're, we are somebody who is able to listen without judgment, right? And that is so, it is so tough. It is tough for both parts of the relationship. Um, we demonstrate accountability. If we if we fall short, we take responsibility for it as soon as possible and we apologize if necessary. We are also open to an experience and and willing to admit our part when a disagreement occurs these next couple are really super important being able to hold steady when the going gets rough sit in the discomfort of a tough conversation it's also known as holding tension in life giving ways we stay in the conversation listening in order to understand rather than shutting down and running away non-judgment by cultivating a heart of curiosity rather than judging the other person, and we're willing to hold space for that other person while they're being vulnerable. Holding space is simply—it's a term that simply means we are actively listening to the other person without judgment, without trying to fix them, without trying to correct them or offer advice. It simply means to be present for your partner. Those, I think, are the pretty much the touchstones of, of the intersection um, between vulnerability and intimacy, and it's in, using those methods, that's how we can have healthy boundaries in our relationship.
0: Okay, so that's a little bit about that intersection between vulnerability and intimacy. That expression holding space, what yep. does that
1: mean? So the simplest way I can describe it is, um, I'll, I'll use my daughter as an example. You know, she used okay. to call me, and if, 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 if anyone's ever been a parent, or it really you don't even have to be a parent, you could be a friend. Have you ever known somebody that, that you take something to them, right, uh, or somebody comes to you and they're telling you about something that's going on and, you know, that need to just jump in there and, well, you know, when I was in such and such a situation, this is what I did. Right, that offering advice or trying to fix it. Holding space is listening to what somebody has to say, and then um, being curious with them when they finish saying what they're saying. Well, how did you feel about that? Being uh, exercising empathy. You know how oh, that was. Sounds like it was really hard, right? Holding space is just right. simply being. It doesn't mean you're trying to fix. It doesn't mean like, well, God, that was the dumbest thing. Why would you do that? Judging them for what their choice was or whatever, right? It just it it just simply means being able to, you know, um, especially like especially if someone is screwed up, right, or you know, not been able to show up in some way for the relationship or each other. Um, holding space is just a really, I really call it a very sacred act of. Um, intimacy because it really demonstrates a, a um, that that idea of really listening to your partner in order to understand instead of trying to fix or change or judge or criticize
0: got it okay and so that is a real safe place for people to share their truth there's no yeah other- there's less criticism and judgment. Sometimes that comes up, but people attempt to hear and understand. And that's what, again, um, creates vulnerability.
1: Well, and, and for many couples, Carolyn, you know this too, it's a whole new way of communicating with each other. You know, it really is a whole new way of communicating with each other. In that class yesterday, one of the guys said, he goes, All right, I already know what my wife is going to say, so I don't even bother um, asking her. Or telling her what I need, I already know what she's going to say, and I'm, i am was like, well, yeah. And and so the thing is, then maybe it's about thinking about the way that you say it, you know, or ask for what you yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely. So, again, this has been a fascinating discussion on vulnerability and intimacy, and it really requires a certain amount of self-awareness. We've talked about that tonight. Um, if somebody wanted to contact you, Marie, how could they do that?
1: Well, sure. So my website, it's my name. It's Marie Krebs, K-R-E-B-S, consulting.com. Um there's, you can contact me through a form on there. Um, my telephone number is 469-212-9897 um, if somebody wants to call. And, uh, again, Carol, thanks so much for having me on.
0: Well, I, you know, this is one of those topics that everybody wants to know about, whether they're the partner, whether they're the addict. That's what everybody's searching for in their relationship, and especially when recovery has occurred and people are really rocking and rolling. They want to know how can we get become more intimate. And I don't talk sexually. I mean emotionally. And vulnerability sure. is the best way to do that. So, Marie, thank you so plan. much yeah. for sharing with them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Carol. Have a good evening.
0: Hey, you too. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. So, again, that's... Marie Krebs, and she is our vulnerability and intimacy expert. She is a spiritual director, she's a clinician, and she absolutely knows, she's worked with Brene Brown, she's uh, done the Daring Way, which is Brene Brown's program, and this is a woman who wants you to feel comfortable in your own skin. Hey, I am Carol Jurgensen. She, I want you to feel comfortable too. That's why we do this show. And so, as I say to you at the end of every show, hey, there's only going to be one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And wow, that has a lot to do with vulnerability and intimacy. So we will see you next week. And you know what I believe? I believe in the law of abundance, which means... You make it a good week no matter what happens to you. And you can always contact me at carol, at carolthecoach.com. If you have a specific question, a comment, or an issue that you want me to address, I am your personal therapist and coach, and I so much want you to know that you've got resources out there. You're listening to Sex Health with Carol the Coach.